Halt! Who goes there? Stand in the light and unfold yourself. It is I, Macchizio, Duke of Mansfield. Long live the Huskies. Tis now struck twelve. Get thee to bed, Macchizio! In sooth, it is a strange thing to walk the moors of Stours and be so hammered. It comes from dawdling overmuch, lounging and drinking, tired to death. Sloth holds me in its iron clutch. Then do not accost me, sir. Good manager of the food court, bring forth a gammon of bacon and the curled macaroni of Naples. Add to it the heat of the jalapeno. It is pure air and fire, and the dull elements of earth and water never appear in it. Peace, peace, Macchizio, peace. Thou talkest of nothing. Nay, for Queen Herbst hath been with me. She is the fairy's food court manager, and she comes in shape no bigger than an elbow pasta on the fork of an alderman, drawn with a team of little cafeteria workers athwart men's noses as they lie asleep. Pray, go on. Say more, Macchizio. I would, for though I am not splenitive and rash, yet have I something in me dangerous which let thy wisdom fear. Hold off thy hand, for now do I hurl the contents of my stomach. Then away let us cut, for in yon glade the nose doth meet. Rude mechanicals gathered for an hour of talk. Of the Kennedys will they speak, and modernizations of the bard, and this knight of Macchizio, which is so foul and... So fair. And now a churlish, scurvy, valiant, canker blossom, whatever that means, Colin McEnroe. Whatever that means indeed. So welcome to the news. Let me tell you who's on this week, and then I'll try to set things up for you. Uh, legendary uh, theater writer and critic Frank Rizzo from the Hartford Current is with us, making his first appearance on the news, making her not first appearance on the news. I think the person who was a person who was on the original first episode of the news, Irene Papoulis uh, from Trinity College, and from Communication Strategies. I got it right this time. Patty McQueen. Yes, Communication Strategies is a communication firm that partners. No, I'm not going to read the whole description from the website. Thanks. But I did actually try to make sure I knew the name of the company this time. All right. So uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin, in fact, with this uh, story of macaroni and cheese in the night in Yukon. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about uh, the Kennedys. The Kennedys kind of are, I think, American Shakespeare in some ways. Uh, and uh, one generation of the Kennedy family right now is – um, sort of, I guess, having kind of a difference, a difference of opinion uh, about uh, the role that alcohol and um, post-traumatic stress syndrome and things like that have played in the forging of that family. And lastly, we will talk about a controversial proposal. It's not just a proposal. It's a commission by the Oregon Shakespeare, uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to translate all of Shakespeare's plays. I'm not sure translate is even the right word, but repurpose them anyway into a modern style of English or maybe various modern styles of of English, all of the plays. Uh, all right, but we're going to begin uh, uh, about a week ago or so at UConn, uh, where a young man named Luke Gaddy, he's 19 years old, he did attain a legendary status. Uh, there's a nine-minute video, which you probably have seen by now, uh, because millions and millions of people have now seen it, uh, and in which uh, Luke Gaddy apparently drunk berates and shoves a UConn food court manager. Um, and copies are just proliferating all over YouTube now, uh, and it's all about his need for bacon, jalapeno, mac and cheese. Um, the problem is that he's got an open container of beer. Uh, he's not allowed to bring that into the college food court. It's late at night. Uh, this, food this food court manager and his staff eventually at wit's end, after he shoved the food court manager a few times, they wrestle him to, to the floor and they hold him there until a cop shows up. And since then, the whole world has been watching this situation. 
the next day, well, the day after the, the story kind of broke, uh, his family was there picking him up, uh, taking him away. Not clear, I think, whether he's been expelled yet or not. But um, so, you know, I have a lot of questions about this. But, you know, uh, Irene Babulis, you teach a college. Um, drunk college students aren't a rarity. They're not hard to find. Uh, even drunk, obnoxious uh, college students are not a rarity or hard to find. So what is it about this particular video? Why did it get 1.6 million uh, views right away? Since then, by the way, the original video got taken down for reasons we don't quite understand. But there's another one up that has another 1.3 million and many other copies. I mean, really, half a million, uh, I mean, you know, half, I mean, no, half a million, five million people have probably seen this by now. So uh, why is that happening? Why? What is? What are the elements in there that are kicking those tripwires? Um, well, that's a good question. I just watched the whole video this morning. I mean, the other day I sort of watched it for like just two the highlights? seconds. Yeah. yeah, but this morning I watched the whole video. And uh, one, you know, the fact that it's a video is one thing. I mean, at one point he kind of lo- I, and I think it's his friend, right, who who took the video. I'm not sure. It seemed like it wasn't just a bystander. So at one point he looks at the camera with sort of a sheepish grin towards the beginning, and it's sort of like, hey, you know, you're. And then the guy who's filming is saying, oh no, oh no, oh no. So I feel like part of it is just um, uh, see how much this kid is going to do, and he's performing. I mean, he's he's kind of acting for the for the camera and for all of us. So and so we um, obliged by wanting to watch it. Yeah, I That's think I I think this is not known, but the. Much deeper than necessary and or as much deeper than would be good for me, research that I've done about this suggests to me that maybe the person making the video works at that location. Um, this is based on some tweets, the almost reliable tweets. You know, I mean, if you want to get to the bottom of anything, obviously read tweets. But I think I might be right about this, that he works at this location. But I agree. He's playing to the camera. So that's one thing. Yeah, and it, it's it's actually fascinating the way it develops too, because the guy, the 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 the, the worker seems so, the manager seems so unflappable at first, mm-hmm. and he's just talking in a very rational, calm way. You know, you can't do it, you can't do it. But then all of a sudden, towards the end, he just completely loses it. And when well, when he gets shoved, which is understandable, mm-hmm. but it's sort of though his his anger and animosity has been building up, which I can uh, relate to as a sometimes t- as a teacher of every once in a while there are students like that it's rare but um th- you know who who sort of uh won't let go you know and so that can be very um frustrating to somebody whom they won't let go of although and we're gonna have the theater critic go last year but the dramatis persona kind of builds up there's two women who work there who say out out get out uh and then eventually the person who really does get mad and take him down is a chef who works for him who says you you can't treat my boss like that and takes him down in what we believe to be a full nelson move not legal in most forms (laughs) of wrestling so and we have to say you know that he's a white guy and if he had been an african-american guy it would have been a different kind of video and a different kind of story perhaps and so um, I just think that's important to to note because we maybe feel you know a lot of people feel more sympathetic to him. So one of the things themes that will come up, White Patty, people, that is, sorry. When, well as we're talking about uh, when, later when we're talking about the Kennedys, I think we'll say the same thing, which is people can see the same situation and read it different ways. Uh, and have very different reactions to it. So um, the most common reaction to this has been that this guy is just really, really, really obnoxious in a way that's kind of amusing, especially because he kind of gets what's coming to him at the end. Is that the way it looks to you? Well, one of my, you know, I kept watching it, waiting for him to get what was coming to him. It's about the only reason I got to nine minutes was like, come on, when is this going to happen? 
Uh, and the other thing that struck me was, as you watch it, you can hear all the kids around reacting. Every once in a while, even they are stunned at what this kid has said. You'll, you hear some oohs and, oh, my God, oh, my God. Um, he, um, the moment that absolutely struck me was when he turned and he realized that he was being uh, recorded, and he got that ridiculous smile on his face that just – and it was like – you know, and, and then he turns again. That was when he started poking him in the head and saying, "You're going to look like a tool." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I just, I mean, sort of breathtaking. And it, and it, you know, then it, and it sort of why, locks why in. Why breathtaking? Because every because this guy just he, he's he, much calmer. The manager is more calm than this kid deserves under any circumstance. Mm-hmm. He. You know, he's he's holding him off and holding him off and holding him off. And, and with every time this kid gets more arrogant, I'm just waiting for the cops to show up with the handcuffs. And I and, and really, it's the only reason I made it to nine minutes. Well, uh, Frank Rizzo, Nico Muley is probably turn, turning this into an opera right now that you'll have to review at some point, um, the, the ballad of Luke Gatti. But so what do, what do you see in all this? Well, I see an actor who comes alive once the, uh, the green light is on. So once the kid sees that he's part of a show, he, he ramps it up a bit and decides to make this into the longest soliloquy I've ever heard on stage. Uh, but I'm, I was fascinated by the people around him and the reactions to the people around him. Here's a situation that is clearly potentially escalating. And despite Susan Herp's uh, reach out to college president of civility at, at UConn, here is a potentially volatile situation that no one is uh, trying to arrest but only sort of feeding into by getting out their uh, cell phones to, to record. So it, it becomes this sort of fake reality and uh, besides being a jerk and and wearing white socks with sandals, who does that? Uh, it's uh, it's sort of a little bit of a freak show, uh, which he worries about when they when he at the end there oh, when really? he oh my he god cr- where he are cr- shoes he wants to know where his shoes are he's very concerned that's about his more shoes. important yeah. than than the fact that he's just <laughs> gotten arrested yes yeah. and handcuffed but it's just Luke being Luke mm. you know. And I, I sort of wonder about that too. First of all, I, I was watching this and I, I had similar reactions to all of you. But I also thought there's something else going on here because in a, at a certain point, he knows what it is that he wants. It's what all of you have said, that this has to end a certain way. And we know that he's been – like I've never been thrown to the ground and cuffed. But he has already before this. He knows exactly how this is going to end and he's not going to stop until it ends that way. Now, either that's the case because, as Frank is suggesting, you know, he's a performer, that everybody's a performer now. Increasingly in this age where people whip out their their cell phone cameras, people perform. It's either that or it struck me actually and then I sort of got sadder about this whole thing that there's something else going on, that he's in some bizarre duel with his father or some other authority figure whoever it is who's going to come to pick him up and bear some of the shame of this. And that he, I mean, he was up at the University of Massachusetts last year. He did essentially the same thing twice in one month in the month of September up there. So he knows how this goes. But yeah. that's the subtext, Colin. You're, <laughs> you're going for the subtext yeah. instead of just treating it as a uh, drunken kid who's dying to get macaroni and cheese. Now, is, if this was tofu, was if, you know, would it get the same amount of hits? Everyone likes macaroni and cheese. But in, in terms of, uh, of feeding into it, I think as 
viewers, we are sort of you know, trying to project who is this kid? What's going on? Why is he doing it? Uh, and uh, in 30 years earlier, you probably was a Kennedy. Well, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, but uh, what he's saying is really interesting. I mean, in the sense also that I'm aware as I'm watching this of several all kinds of sets of reactions I'm having. You know, it's, it's customary these days for these YouTube vo- videos to be annotated sometimes. And if I were annotating this, I would say, you know, I mean, at the beginning, I, I, I'm thinking, well, you know, jalapeno and bacon macaroni and cheese sounds pretty good, actually. I've never had that before. But it, the, the fact that he even thinks that this exists and he can have it, which the, some current researchers went out there and found out that's, that's not strictly true. You kind of have to go over to the salad bar or the toppings bar and get the jalapeno and bacon yourself and mix it into the macaroni and cheese. But So that was my first reaction, too. I think Frank's right. If this if what he wanted was a, a turkey sandwich, it wouldn't be quite as viral as it is. There's something about him wanting this particular thing that's both a comfort food and then an exotic version of it. Well, in minute four, I was sort of getting kind of peckish, you know, <laughs> where uh, I sort of – my mind drifted more to the macaroni and cheese <laughs> than this tedious, you know, rep- <laughs> repetitive – uh, rant that he was well, on. Well, yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, in a way, it's also a, a Rorschach test, and that's part of why so many people want to watch it, because I watch it as the mother of a 19-year-old mm-hmm. also, and so part of me it thinks, oh, the poor kid, you know, he's mm-hmm. just a lost kid. Yep. And, you know, they, he, you know, they should just let him, he, you know, he should just get out of there. Why can't he just, with one little turn of the thing, maybe he could, he could just get out and he'd be okay. And maybe somebody could talk to him about how he feels and, you know, make him some macaroni and cheese somewhere else or so whatever. He spits but, in the face of the, of the manager well, on the way right. out the door in yeah. handcuffs. I was actually just on the verge of feeling kind of bad for him. And and then he did that. He's not going to let you do this. And I, I think right. Frank is right. It's unclear whether this is Eugene O'Neill or Fairley Brothers. <laughs> it's one or the other. I'm seeing the Eugene O'Neill, the sort of overthrow of everything, you know, and the the problems with the father. And then, I, but I think what I think you're right too that what, the perspective from which you watch this is really says a lot about you and says a lot about how you'll react to this. By the way, we're not going to be talking about this too much longer. So uh, actually the best thing you could do would be to tweet about it, at WNPR Colin. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter, at WNPR Colin. I'm sure you've all been following this drama. So I actually had, I may have been the only person here, but I, w- I was sort of having this kind of Harrison Ford in Witness reaction where slowly I could feel my own hand clenching up a little bit, like in my arm tensing a little bit. Like I, I, I suddenly was the manager thinking about punching this kid. Um, and I was really sort of fighting that too. You know? but, but for yeah. good drama, you have to have an, a third element. And right. that would be one of those friends of his, one of those on watchers who steps up. And they perhaps, try. They try. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. the kid that comes in and he tries mm-hmm. – before the before the chef without with his hair askew comes in and but it wasn't with the full it wasn't from. fully developed anyway if, if you watch Shakespeare you know it's a bad idea to be Mercutio uh, you just, if you step between them you know you're the one who who doesn't walk out of it so we're going to take a, a break pretty soon I will say one thing you know one of you I think used that sort of lost boys thing and that's what I see there too and I sort of see maybe I'm reading way too much but I feel like this kid is just another version of kids who are boys who are kind of lost in this jock culture, drinking culture. He's actually a competitive skier who was expected to ski for UConn. Um, a jock culture, a drinking culture, and kind of like a f- culture in which they don't fit in all that well. You know, there's no real clear role for them. And a lot of times it ends even worse than this. And that's one, of the, one end of the spectrum, and the other one is, you know, the white kid that thinks that whatever he wants he should get, yeah. you know, so... 
Or, or if it was a young woman instead, would we have this sympathy to the la- lost girl? No. 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 And, we would call her awful names. And I also think <laughs> – I think that there – somebody somewhere along the way said something about Trump. And I think, you know, not to trivialize it, I do think that Trump appeals to this really base and awful thing in in a lot of people. And I think that's what you see in this kid. You see – I mean, the whole the whole uh, issue with the manager sort of poking fun at him because he's a lesser human being yep. is so offensive. And and that comes from somewhere. Somebody feeds into that and t- has let this kid know that that's OK. The littlest Trump. All right. So that's like the, that's the holiday uh, no, that's movie. The movie yes. Yeah, that's the movie. All right. We have to take a break. We'll come back with more after this. But every boy's made me mac and cheese Has always turned out to be a violent sociopath all right, we're back with the nose. Patty McQueen is with us. So is Irene Papoulos. And Frank Rizzo is being on the nose for the first time. Uh, very exciting for us as well, as I hope for him, maybe. Um, all right, so this week, um, the Kennedy family, um, who, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about in compiling even the panel that I compiled today is, you know, you, you like Rebecca Castellani, I think, is our youngest uh, nose panelist. And I thought, no, it's got to be people who basically sort of have lived with this whole Kennedy story uh, and have the relationship that they have. So Patrick. Kennedy, a former uh, Rhode Island congressman. He's 48 years old. Uh, he's opening up in a whole new way, uh, he says, about the Kennedy's uh, family's struggle with mental illness and addiction. He's got a new memoir. It's called A Common Struggle. Um, and as he began doing interviews about it uh, and, and talking uh, about the fact – about the about the role that alcohol played in the family, although that's not exactly news um, – and uh, and about the idea that it was, he thought his father had post-traumatic stress syndrome, that it was kind of passed on to his sister and brother and himself. Um, suddenly, we started hearing from other members of the family, and especially Ted Jr., whom some of us here in the studio know, uh, said uh, on Sunday that he was heartbroken that Patrick had written what he called an un- inaccurate and unfair portrayal of their family. And he said that the narrative was mean- misleading and hurtful. Uh, other members of the family have had their own sort of differences with this story. So, so Patty McQueen, as somebody who spent an awful lot of time in the political sphere and probably knows one or two of these people, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that ordinarily doesn't get debated in public. And I guess Patrick's point is, well, that's the problem. Right. It doesn't get right. debated in public. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that that's what I hear him saying is that in order for that, that in order for him to heal and in order for him to sort of pay it forward, that what he needs to do is lay it all out. And and the, the you know it's I, it's very brave of him to do this. Um, it's a little bit dangerous because for people in recovery, I think any time you sort of lay it out there that I'm clean and sober, you put more pressure on yourself to stay clean and sober. Uh, so th- and that's 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 an issue he just has to deal with in this. But but it's pretty brave to take on that machine that we've all seen all of our lives and and what's interesting to me is that even the pushback from the family the truth is that all of those things could be true i mean you could be disappointed that he's telling this story but it could still be true and it could be hurtful but it could still be true so um I, you know, and nobody's really said anything that pokes a hole in it. What they've said is how it feels. And I understand all of that, but I think um, for 
for some for for the issue of substance abuse and mental health um, treatment, it's a huge uh, gift in a way to sort of put it in the headlines in a healthier way. You know, uh, not to pigeonhole you as a theater critic, uh, Frank Rizzo, but um, you know, things happen on stage because they need to be on stage because people need them to be on stage. So we're back to Eugene O'Neill, you know, sort of bringing these things forward. On the other hand, one thing, you know, Ted Kennedy Jr. is the first Kennedy I've ever really met, and I even know him a tiny bit like the next time I see him, we could continue a conversation we had before. And it's the first time I realized these people weren't Shakespearean players, you know, that they actually are real people. Very human. I've been thinking about this from a theatrical point of view, and I come down on as everyone has their own story. Everyone has the right to their own story. There's not a family story that only one person in that family can tell. And for all of these people, their stories are the true stories from their perspective and their point of view. And certainly this is is his. Uh, I'm sure Donald Trump wants to control his family's uh, you know, story and his story, but he has kids. Everyone has kids. Everyone has parents. Eugene O'Neill's uh, kids, uh, they all have family connections, and they all have stories. Some stories are better than others, but I think if they all have a right to tell it the way that they want to tell it. It's, yes, go ahead. I just think it's it's amazing how, you know, Ted Kennedy is so was so abnormal, but he was so normal too, you know, and even the words that um, that uh, Patrick used of like, you know, the the um, the unprocessed emotions that he felt, you know, and so just that whole that whole theme and that whole idea that I, which I find very interesting in general is that if you don't feel something, you, you know, you, you you're going to be you're going to be trapped until you really feel it, you know, in, in a way it seems so counterintuitive as a concept, you know, it's like, can't really, just, that seems counterintuitive well, to you? It seems intellectually it does not, not personally and emotionally. Mm. I, I think it's absolutely true. But at the same time, I think, can't you just put it away? Can't you just say, yeah, this happened in the past, but it's over now. So no big deal. Well, you just it depends on who you're talking about. Cause I mean, to me, one of the things that this, that's happening here is there is kind of a smashing or an attempt to smash a, a kind of American myth, which is stoically going forward, you know, and it's a yeah. myth basically that the Kennedy family family promulgated for whatever reason, for their own sake, for the country's sake. You know, the story of Ted Kennedy Sr. was he had been through the worst possible things, you know, the the the, the assassinations of two of his brothers. Um, then there was that um, 1980 campaign, Patty McQueen, where he ran and it was just so clear. You know, the, uh, his ambivalence about this, you know, was a so completely understandable, so clear to a lot of other people besides him, you know. And so to have his son say, you know, he had post-traumatic stress syndrome. Right. I, to me, that's sort of liberating. Like, why did we have to pretend that someone could just sort of boldly go forward after this? See, I think it's interesting that you say that because I'm not sure we ever pretended. I mean, I think that 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 Ted Kennedy has always sort of been flawed, and we we came to accept him for being that flawed. I mean, there was Chappaquiddick, and and he was forgiven for you know some pretty unforgivable stuff there. Uh, for for lots of reasons that we don't need to get into all the details of, but there were lots of things that happened uh, to him along the way, and and somehow he survived them. So I, it's it's you know the fact that someone would say that he that his son would say that he had post traumatic stress was like of course he did. Right, but he was Ted Kennedy, so he was supposed to be I, different. But you but, know, he, that's but, what I mean. he but I know he wasn't. 
But what I'm saying is I don't think that it's – I mean, it's not a surprise that he wasn't. We, I think we all knew he wasn't, and we all knew he was kind of – kind of broken and that's part of what made him so great is that he picked himself up and he kept on going well i think you can be broken and keep going and still not be you know impervious but i yeah and so it's sort of i mean i i I mean i i think we i agree that we knew he was broken but i think we sort of thought he was handling it at least i did or you know I think we, some kind of collective, we thought, well, yeah, but he's Ted Kennedy. So, yeah, he's got all those things. But well, he's it, handling it because he's a great man, let's and say. I think but, it, go, it goes back to Frank's point, too, that in some ways two stories can be true at the same time. And so with the Kennedys, there's one story that they are held to impossible standards. Yeah. And then the other story is excuses and cover-ups for them go on all the time. So that starting with Jack and going forward so that maybe you do get a William Kennedy Smith, you get a Chappaquiddick, that both of those things are true. They have to behave incredibly heroically, but over the course of that, there's sort of a corruption of them that goes on too. Um, and, and maybe, I don't know, this, I wouldn't want to be this generation of Kennedys because they're, I think, no. trying to synthesize all this and try to, trying to figure it all out. Well, they've got all the bad without all the good. You know, and and I mean that in the nicest way that they don't, you know, that 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 the, those sort of glory days of JFK and Bobby are are behind them, and and now they're dealing with all of yeah. this fallout without I, any of that. I think the second generation has a different perspective, a different point of view, and a different sensibility of how to handle things. But everyone is different. All right, we're going to have to wrap this up because we're some very nice people are going to come and ask you to support not only this radio station but this radio show. So please do that. Think about doing that. The nice people will be saying nice things about us, ideally. I don't don't even know who's in the booth right now. (laughs) Whether they do or not, support the radio station because it really helps this show. Helps this show if you make your pledge right now. We'll be back with more of Patty McQueen, Frank Rizzo, and Irene Papoulis after the proverbial this. working on a translation of the Dick and Jane books into Shakespearean English. Thrice now the brindled cat Puff hath mewed. Jane hath said, Here, Puff, cometh hither. Look, hath said Jane. Look hither, Puff. Jane hath said, Puff, Puff, behold at this. Come hither and behold at this. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Lydia Brown. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin McCarthy. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making B&J, M&C with A&T and F&M, I'm just making stuff up now, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, The Scramble looks at the shabby world of fantasy football. And now, back to Colin. By one reckoning, 60,000 commercials for FanDuel and and the other one have now... um, uh, Fantasy King have now run in this one year alone, and now it's all being revealed as a terrible, sh- scabby, shabby sham. So that'll be part of Monday's show. We'll be doing other stuff as well. All right, we're back with Frank Rizzo, theater writer and critic for the Hartford Current, uh, and uh, Patty McQueen from Com- Communication Strategies, and from um, Trinity College, Irene Papoulis. So we're going to definitely need our theater critic and our English professor uh, for this segment. I'm going to just read uh, the introduction to the New Yorker's latest posting about this uh, rather than make up my own. Last week, the Oregon Theater uh, Shakespeare Festival announced that it had commissioned 36 playwrights to 
translate all of Shakespeare's plays into modern English. The backlash began immediately with OSF, uh, that's the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, devotees posting their laments on the festival's Facebook page. What a revolting development. Is there really a need to translate uh, English into brain-dead American? And why not just rewrite Shakespeare in emoticons and text acronyms? Asterisk, somebody is probably doing that. Uh, beneath the opprobrium laid a sh lay a shared assumption that Shakespeare's genius inheres not in his complicated characters or carefully orchestrated scenes or subtle ideas, but in the singularity of his words. So I guess I will start with the, the uh, theater critic. Well, I mean, Shakespeare gets monkeyed with all the time, all right? All the time. Uh, and in the uh, 18th century, uh, completely rewritten. Uh, no sniff of Shakespeare there. I mean, they, they just changed everything willy-nilly. In fact, uh, they changed his name to willy-nilly. Willy-nilly, yeah. yeah. That's, um, or Millie Vanilli, I think it might have But uh, so it's nothing new. It's this approach of changing just the language uh, and nothing else, not the setting, not the um, uh, time period, uh, and using contemporary writers to do it. it my, my gut reaction was the eyeball roll, uh, and the the cheap jokes, you know, Harold Bloom is in the ICU unit at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital because ha Harold is one of the world's greatest scholars of Shakespeare. We like to emphasize that Harold is, to the best of our knowledge, not right now, <laughs> although he's get, getting on in years. But, but I, I imagine that, that this is you know, uh, not one of his favorite uh, uh, initiatives. However, this is being done by uh, a man that I respect greatly in the theater. In fact, I saw him last night at uh, Paula Vogel's yeah. opening, Bill Rausch, right. who has done amazing things at the Oregon Shakespeare uh, Theater. And um, sort of I'm intrigued by uh, by the project and would be interested in seeing where it goes. So I've I've held back on my sense of mockery. And the more I think about it, the more I read the New Yorker article, uh, the more uh, I think there's more to it than that. I just sort of, like I said earlier, wish maybe they didn't have to embrace all 36 at once. Mm -hmm. And I wonder who gets the short straw for two noble kingsmen. Right. So um – uh, one of the people not pleased with this is the Shakespeare scholar James uh, Shapiro of Columbia. He's actually been on this show. He was on the show we did about Hamlet uh, last year. Uh, he's not happy about this and feels that all kinds of subtleties are going to be vacuumed out. Irene, as a teacher, you've got to be a little bit worried about this. I mean, we live in an age anyway where the first thing everybody does, I think, from what I can tell, is go online and look for the electronic versions of the cliff notes to everything. Um, so... I mean, they don't want to wrestle with all this stuff. I mean, at least there's a, there's a, maybe nobody's ever wanted to wrestle with it. But um, this sort of plays into to a, a desire that people, especially young people, may have. Absolutely. Um, and I, uh, I don't like that desire because I think reading difficult texts is really important and uh, and also listening to them in the theater. But uh, there was a there was a. I, I forgot to look it up, but there's some. There was an op-ed in the Times recently about this issue, saying that the acting really has a huge effect on how people perceive Shakespeare's words. You know, and I think that's so true. When I think of the Hamlet that we had in the, at the yes. Hartford stage last year, he was so good. You never, for a minute, said, "What is he talking exactly. about?" Exactly, because he was so good at acting, and so and it and it's because he really understood the words. You know, and everyone's seen a high school Shakespeare production where the kids have no idea what they're talking about, but they've memorized everything. 
everything. And it's just complete gibberish, you know. So so part of it is, you know, I feel like training the training of actors and making sure that the actors live the the the, the language is also part of what does this. Um, and at the same time, I think in, in the classroom, it's the same thing because so many teachers said, or at least when I was in high school, the teacher would say, go home and read this, you know, and everybody would say, what? I can't read this. This doesn't make any sense, you know, but there's been so much work like Shakespeare and Company and Lennox Mass does these wonderful workshops for teachers and students. And I've, I've played around with that myself in some classes where you have students act the language out and th and understand it that way, you know, and so working with because I think there is a problem a crisis of re with of reading in our culture but part of the problem is students who don't know how to read aren't really taught how to read and there are ways that you actually can teach students how to read and Shakespeare's language is beautiful for that so Patty McQueen I think I uh, infected you with the schmoop virus earlier today <laughs> so um because, I mean, uh, well, actually, uh, in this church that I go to, we're reading the Book of Mark, and I was inviting occasional nose panelist Jim Chapdelaine to come to church with me, and he showed me schmoop, where they take the Book of Mark. And they, in, a, in very sort of jocular, vernacular ways, they don't even translate it. They just sort of tell you what they think is going on. It's the Ver cliff notes, yeah. It, it, yeah, and, but it's also yeah. kind of interestingly interpretive and contextualizing, and it's, I mean, it's flip, and it's irreverent, and it's sacrilegious, but it's also... I found it actually pretty useful. Uh, but we don't want to, I mean, and maybe you could say that about this too, that it's the schmooping of Shakespeare. But um, if that's a gateway into Shakespeare, yeah. If, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because my, my initial response is, you know, to, to not like the idea uh, in part because, you know, when we were, when I was a kid, and my parents used to get tickets to the, the, Stra the Shakespeare Festival in Stratford. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were little kids, and we would drive down to see these Shakespeare plays, and my mother would read aloud on the way to the play, So we would, and she would sort of go through what was in the play with us so we would understand what was happening. And, and again, you know, uh, who understood the language? It didn't make any. It was like it was gobbledygook, except when she would explain it all, and then we'd go watch it, and there were these people in these great costumes, and they were doing classical Shakespeare, and it was fabulous. And I, I think, you know, Shakespeare is sort of the greatest challenge in theater. And, and it, I don't know. I just don't know why you would ruin it. Well, uh, the instructions uh, for this project is very, very specific. Uh, it's not to cut, not to edit, and not to add any personal politics it's just to clarify so with, and not to do anything crazy with it. Now, I understand that part, and I'm going to wait and see. But on the other hand— Translation is inherently— well, And I agree because subjective. I keep going back to what I call the whoosh of experience where you're watching Shakespeare done and, and you're, you're in the middle of a scene and you don't know what the heck is happening on stage. But you're writing the words like you're writing a surfer rides the wave. You're just writing it. You don't know, don't know exactly what's going on. And then suddenly there's a moment of revelation. And you don't get that any other way other than just sort of somehow it breaks through. And suddenly you get it. And certainly is helped by good acting and good stage direction. But sometimes it's just 
uh, happens on on the wave all by yourself. And and that's an extraordinary experience that you wouldn't get if everything is spelled out for you. So again, I'm I'm a divided man here. That's a great way to put it. I I think that's really true. And um, I agree with you. And but on the other hand, it, it we can be helped by various things. I would totally second Irene's emotion that that the the Darko Treznik version of Hamlet. Uh, I was never in any doubt about what was being said, and Hamlet is can be confusing at moments, and it just wasn't. I, I don't know what the trick was there, but it wasn't. Everything was spoken in a way that made called it called acting. Yeah, well, yeah, but there are good actors who can't do that. I, there was yes. some some way in which. It was this was really done in in an incredibly helpful way, um, but I guess the other thing that that I would maybe even like to sort of uh, end with is, as we get ready for our endorsements, we'll have a lot of time for endorsements, but that's a good thing. Um, is that you know we you don't want to lose track of this language because it is our language. You know, I mean, if you just go through Hamlet for every single phrase or trope that just made it into the English language that we use. I mean, you just don't get through a day probably without using something. Like Ben Carson saying last night, uh, <laughs> so yeah, he said it was much to do about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, people don't really always get sure. it right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's do endorsements right now. Um, we'll let Frank go last so he can pick up the little drift of it. So Irene, what have you got to endorse? I um, have to endorse a restaurant called Shoe Restaurant. Have you been there? S-H-U? Nope. Chinese restaurant. It is t- incredibly delicious and amazing. The locality? And the locality is on New Britain Avenue. It's um, right actually in the, li- the same plaza where Faux Boston is and the Adang um, supermarket. So near the Hartford, West Hartford line. Near the West Hartford line across. And um, it's just authentic Chinese. Somebody told me that it was authentic Chinese food and I didn't really believe it until I went there. And it's just, you know, the seven flavored wonton appetizers is mm. amazing. Wow. I highly recommend it. You had me at seven-flavored wonton appetizer. <laughs> All right. What have you got, Patty McGuire? Uh, mine's actually an old – it's an old endorsement. Uh, and over the last week or so, I've had the uh, reason to be looking back at the uh, – at Funny Girl and the between the the Broadway uh, uh, soundtrack and the, and the movie. And I'm sort of blown away anew by how great Barbara Streisand was. I mean, she's sort of become – something else in her later years. And um, I'm not sure she ever repeated that performance um, in anything else she did. But some of that music um, just still gives me chills when I hear it. And um, and it's just worth going back and listening to again. She's, she's marvelous. It's odd. I was thinking about Barbara Streisand earlier this week. All right. So, Frank and, Rizzo, you see everything. And to segue, that was my first Broadway show that I saw. I actually oh, saw yeah. Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. Lucky. Yeah. One of the few performances she actually did. Yes, I, I, I got that. Um, my recommendation is a show I saw last night at your repertory theater called uh, Paula Volgo. Uh, is, uh, his, the play is called Indecent. It's a transformative play. It's so theatrical, so interesting. And my review should be hitting uh, the internet at ctnow.com any minute now. But uh, you can probably have gleaned that. I liked it very, very much. And I think everyone should go see it. So this is a, a play about a play. It's a play about a play that was staged originally in 1906-1907 and then moved to Broadway, I think, in 1923, mm-hmm. uh, whereupon it was moving out of the Yiddish theater and, and into the Broadway stage. But it's about prostitutes. Uh, it's about a lesbian love affair. Uh, and it got everybody 
arrested. Basically. No, it's real. This Paula's show is really about the transformative yeah. uh, act of theater, mm. and uh, and it's uh, thrilling. All right, I'm going to endorse. Uh, I'm going to go lowbrow compared to all of this, I think, uh, and endorse something on television. Um, all right, so um, last year on HBO, The Leftovers, based on the Tom Parada novel, I didn't particularly like, but I've just I've liked it enough to kind of stay with it and watch the first episode this year. And they've they really have repurposed the show right down to the opening title credits. There, everything's different. The cast is radically different. Regina King, who I would just endorse in anything, is going to have a big role uh, this year on The Leftovers. And the first episode was riveting, absolutely riveting. Could not take my eyes off it. And I want to particularly mention a young African. American. No, he's not a young, young African-American actor, but young enough. A guy named Kevin Carroll, who I didn't know, I've never seen before. Uh, and he, he was remarkable. I, I will predict great things for him. I also want to quickly mention uh, Saturday night, nightfall, uh, 8 p.m., no, 6 p.m., 6 p.m. at Keeney Park in Hartford. This is as creative and wild and crazy and multidisciplinary as uh, Hartford ever gets. This is the genius of Ann Coverley. Our own Kion Wolf is in it. You ought to go see it. Don't worry. You'll be safe. I know it's Keeney Park. You're nervous. Don't be nervous. Go see Nightfall. Woodbury, getting on New Britain, burning. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the radio.